Portion 4 The Portion on Absoluteness Sutra 35 The Eighth Bhumi Cities are born of practices performed in previous births or by herbs, mantra repetition, aestheticism, or by samadhi. In the room of the shining ones with devoted faces, where there were many righteous souls preserved overhead and upon the walls, you could hear the ancient threads of the Dharma that passed through these brave beings. With all this magnificent energy, as we were empty in space, resting in a clear mind, Shunyata was a limitless place. Then there before me, a Tibetan man materialized before my eyes. He rode upon a wind horse that had come from a heavenly sky. He sat upon the back of the horse, and he was a certain type of jewel. At the bottom of him was a lotus where many scrolls sprouted, and this was ignited on fire which burned forever without fuel. This man on the horse held out the paper scroll, and there his eyes peered into mine. Then he spoke, The time has come for us to ride. A letter to the Vajra guard. Genuine endeavors are more vulnerable than charlatanism. A charlatan's job is to protect himself and his ego. While he is always conning people, a charlatan must be careful not to make enemies so that he won't be exposed to any threats. He must preserve his facade or his falsity will be seen through. He is buying people in order to win their support and he only enters a situation when it seems to be to his or her advantage. In our case, we are not concerned with winning people over, so we are not afraid of insulting people's egos and cutting through them. My interest is not in selling the Dharma. There is no fear in telling the truth to attempt to secure our own personal position. Some people are open to this and become friends and practitioners like yourself. Other people are horribly insulted and threatened. Some of these people run away to preserve their hypocrisy, but some are haunted by the inevitable truth Perhaps they freak out and try to strike in defense of their egoism. Another possibility arises from those who are disillusioned and develop a general vendetta towards spirituality. Dangerous situations have already manifested through threatening calls, letters, visits, and even terrorists come carrying guns, bombs, and grenades. As our work goes further, this type of situation is more likely to occur. The unreasonable and fearless style of these writings and the presentation of the path will no doubt make a few nasty enemies. But as it has always been, the truth is the remedy. You can be a great help. And in order to save your own life, you could become a charlatan. You could become spineless and encourage people's egos. But by doing so, you would become contributing to the pollution of the world and would desecrate the tradition we have carried forth. For the Vajra guards, you have the proper vision to deal with any obstacle. It is not just a matter of ceremony. It is an expression of dedication 
rather than confirmation. To enter through this golden door, to get to the other side, it means you become some form of the Mahakala principle, and so you are then a Vajra guard, a Dharmapala, and the world's guide, said the great saint upon the horse. Of course, but what is the Mahakala principle? Guardship is related to the Mahakala principle. It is the protection of the teachings, and so you will need a vehicle and a weapon. It is not a polite principle, but rather it is quite savage. Mahakalas are protectors who are colorless and who wake up the practitioners and bring their awareness back from the confused world to an open ground. This reminder may manifest as a sudden shock or jolt, almost like a fright that heightens one's sharp sensory awareness of the immediate environment. There are thirteen of us together, and so we are called the Raven Guard, he said. Should I be afraid to die? Fear of death is no problem for us. Actually, no problem at all. Dying is okay, right now if you like, or at any time. The fear of leaving people behind and leaving unfinished business is my problem, he said. What advice can you give us? I have eight reminders. First, have confidence to go beyond hesitation. Second, stay alert before you daydream. Third, be mindful of all details. Be resourceful in performing your duty. Fourth, be fearless beyond idiot compassion. Fifth, be a warrior without anger. Sixth, do not be afraid to be a fool. Seventh, carrying the sword requires an invisible heavy hand. And eighth, be precise without creating a scene, he said. What is the duty of a Vajra guard and a Dharmapala? You must perform these functions. First, presenting obstacles. It is the responsibility to protect, and in a literal sense, they should serve as obstacles to any physical threat. Because the teachings are true and powerful, they present a constant challenge to the ego, particularly in the Vajra style of directness and outrageousness Occasional eruptions of erotic aggression may be expected. However, the role of presenting obstacles is much more often manifested on the psychological level than on the physical level. Through absorbing or deflecting a grieve neurosis before it has an opportunity to become full-blown. Second, accommodating. Because the Vajra guard presents obstacles to neurosis, they can also and must accommodate sanity. It is the role of the guards to create and maintain a space in which the teachings can be proclaimed fully and properly. This includes facilitating and encouraging individual access to the teachings. Guards must relate strongly with the path of the awakened ones by serving others, both at the level of social service and of inspiring further trust in the teachings. Third indestructible. As guards become accomplished in their practice, their presence in a situation should invisibly convey the Vajra, which means indestructible quality of space and the teachings. This comes through the cultivation of dignified and gentle confidence joined with the mandala principle. 
The mandala principle is the idea that we create the world through our own projections. A room full of a hundred different people has a hundred different worlds, yet all phenomena are part of one true reality. This true reality must be seen as our sacred world. The criteria for becoming a Vajra guard or Dharmapala means you must have an individual practice, you must be generous towards others, and be devoted to the great masters and the world. Guards are called upon to give their time, energy, and money, and this is not viewed as doing anyone a favor, but as a privilege and a further opportunity for growing up," he said. What does the highest Vajra guard do best? They never give up on anyone or anything. In the wakeful vision of Shambhala, the great enlightened society, no human being is ever a lost cause. We don't feel that we have to suppress or put a lid on anyone or anything. We are always willing to give things a chance to flower," he said. And who is the ultimate Vajra guard? The ultimate warriors protect the world. You must be willing to be awake in whatever situation presents itself to you. You feel that you can take command of your life because you are not on the side of either success or failure. Success and failure are your journey. In this state, the guard always remains loyal to sentient beings who are trapped in the confused world. Your duty is to generate compassion and warmth for others with complete absence of laziness. Your discipline and dedication are unwavering," he said. Can you tell me more about the Vajra tradition? It is the tantric tradition in the path of awakening. Up till now, we have walked upon the Bodhisattva approach, which is a clean and neat approach. If we were working with a work of art, or creating an arrangement of flowers, in the Bodhisattva tradition, it should be shaped and trimmed. The people who walk this path should be made more generous, more disciplined, more patient, more meditative, and so forth. That would be the Bodhisattva path. And there is great beauty in that way, where a Zen master might chop down a pine tree, plant it in a big pot or garden, and arrange things around it for a courtroom before the emperor to appreciate. The tantric approach is more direct, deliberate, and gross. It is the fashion of an unemployed samurai. They are very gruff and rough. Their knives could be rusty. They might be sloppily dressed, and they are slightly grumpy. That's the tantric or Vajra guard approach. Tantric practitioners are bouncing around between employers who are not employed by either laymen or priests. They are as they are. That is why they are called Siddhas. Siddha is one who works with miracles or power over miracles. But at the same time, the miracles appear just as things as they are. These Siddhas are the tigers, lions, leopards, and panthers that roam around in the jungle. However, they do compose poems. They do create works of art but they are very different from that of a typical tradition. They provide poetry very directly, very simply, such as, I drink fire, I breathe in the earth, I wear clouds, 
I ride upon the universe. I wallow the sun and moon. I wear the stars as my jewelry. I am the conqueror of the universe, he said. There was a great pause when I knew the Dharma to be so. At that moment, the golden door opened, and as I stepped through it, I let go. Drink from the skull cup. Take up the vow. You are now one of the Vajra guards, said the Tibetan saint. As the door opened, it was so bright into the eighth bumi, which was called immovable. At this level, we cease to be ordinary bodhisattvas and begin to touch the level of Mahasattva, or great beings. Up to the seventh bumi, we still have a feeling of a journey, a sense of proceeding somewhere, but the Mahasattva level is perpetual. We are like a fully ripened fruit. We could visualize the Bodhisattva path as a journey in which we set sail from a huge continent, which is the confused world, and cross the ocean to get to an island we have seen. That island consists of the first seven Bhumis and the corresponding Paramitas. But then, having crossed that particular island and achieved the seven conventional Paramitas, which are generosity, discipline, patience, exertion, meditation, prajna, and skillful means, we now take another boat. Now we are on an endless journey, a final journey. We have no more islands to cross. We have left the confused world, and we have completed the first seven boomies. We have gone through the process necessary in order to go beyond into the larger ocean, the greater endness, or beginningness, for that matter. On the eighth boomy, one is not moved by either the relative or absolute understanding of the phenomenal world. At the same time, one develops an enormous comprehension of other people. One can see through people. One can know them and understand them completely. One knows what dharmic approach one might take with them. Tremendous communication takes place, which goes beyond the physical and verbal level to the environmental level. At this stage, the Bodhisattva has cut through the mentality of the formless god or deities, as well as the mentality of the god of form and desire. Up to the seventh Bhumi, spiritual materialism is a problem, as well as basic materialism and poverty. But the closer we get to enlightenment, the higher we go in the paths and Bhumis, the less spiritual materialism we have. However, psychological materialism and the need for basic security keep coming back. Because you feel you are getting close to something, you are more concerned with your security. But at the eighth point, spirituality is simply part of our behavior, so spiritual materialism is not a problem, he said. Now came the light, and it was so, so bright. It covered my entire sight with such warmth and delight. I was only a step inside the golden door, but all that was past had gone and died. And I, well this was not about I, as we took a second step in, a pulse began to resound, and there a drum rhythm pulled my leg where I pounded it upon the ground. Gravity grabbed my foot and pulled it to the boomy, 
Sinking into her, I melted like wax, seeing there were twelve or so ancient guards waiting. They all looked out from within, eyes upon eyes. They could see past and through. They were within the soul, looking out from all of you. The drumbeat hammered against the inner door. I could hear the boomy pound out from behind the brass door. Some of these protectors had split faces. Some were covered in scars. Many had cobras around their necks and were so terrifying that I wished I'd never locked onto their eyes, since all of them were Vajra guards. Now a condor cried out as it had been circling the outside of Kailash's utmost peak and pole. Look there, it screeched, a mole. The first guard's eyes turned red, now his skin turned blue. Eyes upon eyes caught sight of a tiny creature named a mole that had crawled in when the golden door was opened and let me through. This mole seemed to be relaying a message by telepathy, a radio, or like a secret spy as he had reached this point. I heard it whispering to whoever it could as he said, 1670, Tacky Point. Tacky? You think this is tacky? screamed the Vajra guard. You are not allowed! Get out! You haven't taken the Dharmapala vow! The guard grabbed the mole, nearly squeezing it to die. Then he reopened the golden doors, and then the Vajra guard lifted his middle finger and pressed it against the interior of Kailash when he pierced the mountain's side. A slit was cut open. There was a very serious power to this eighth boomy, and now the Vajra guard threw the mole all the way back to India. As the guard slammed the door shut, an avalanche poured down outside. It covered this new opening along the edge of Kailash. When the Vajra guard came back inside, they prepared a ritual called a haka, and so the Vajra guard spoke. Listen carefully. Prepare yourself. Hold fast. Slap your hands against your thighs. Stop your feet as hard as you can. As hard as you can. Will we die? Will we die? Will we live? Will we live? Will we die? Will we live? This is the hairy man who brought the sun and caused it to shine. A step upward. A step upward. The sun shines. Rolling my head on an axis around the mind, a hypnotic pulse carried me like gravity while I shut my eyes. Had I been blind? Now that part of me was exposed when I saw them. I realized this was a very hidden place to find. The raven guards were always watching, and their third eye was always open. They were on to me now. I'd already taken a sip from the cup they were holding, why they'd been sipping on the nectar called Amrita in a very hidden garden. Pomegranates and damson trees. Every pomegranate is said to contain one seed from paradise because it is believed to be the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. A seed of happiness and divine goodness is thread into the soul and life. The sun shined upon us as it must upon a pomegranate tree. These were all beasts of men. But within, they were acting like a small child. And so I had to ask, Raven guards, why are you so fierce and wild? At first it was silent, 
the Vajra guards were caught in ecstatic movement that they'd been lost in. But then a Vajra guard with one eye came close and whispered, Fundamental theism. There are wars all over the world because people are insulted that someone else doesn't agree with their belief system. Everyone is guilty of it. It's what is called fundamental theism. You want something to hold on to. You want to say, Finally, I have found it. This is it. We will inherit Zion. Only we will find heaven. Only we are allowed in the garden of Jana. And so they say, we feel confirmed and secure and righteous. Buddhism is not free of it either. This is a human thing. Yet in Buddhism, there is a teaching that would undercut all of this. If people would only listen to it, the teaching says, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. This means that if you find the Buddha and say, it's this way, a Buddha is like this, and a Buddha should behave like that, then you had better kill that Buddha that you had found, that you can say is like this or that. Contemplative and mystical Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, and people of all faiths and non-faiths can also have this perspective. So whoever you think Christ is, kill that version of Christ. Now Pontius Pilate took this too literally. They couldn't handle who Jesus really was, because he was one of us. The Vajraguard paused and winked, but since he only had one eye, it appeared that he blinked. If you were to meet the Muhammad, or the Jehovah, or whoever that can be named and held onto and is believed in, smash it. That idea cannot grasp the true journey of who it is that you are trying to perceive and believe in. Now we get to the interesting part. How do you do that? Although this approach seems pretty aggressive, we're actually talking about the ultimate non-aggression. People find it quite easy to have beliefs and to hold on to them and to let their whole world be a product of their belief system. They also find it quite easy to attack those who disagree. The harder, more courageous thing is continually to look one's beliefs straight in the face, honestly and clearly, and then step beyond them. That requires a lot of heart and kindness. It requires being able to touch and know completely to the core your own experience without hardness, without making judgments. So by saying, when you meet the Buddha, kill your idea of the Buddha. This means that when you see that you're grasping or clinging to anything, whether conventionally it's called good or bad, make friends with that, look into it, get to know it completely and utterly. In that way, it will let go of itself, said the Vajra guard. Underneath the pinnacle of Kailash, I began to realize that it's quite dangerous to allow others to even get a glimpse of working with this level. Why for that poor mole, by sending a signal out to the community from this palace, he was thrown into a terrible panic and upheaval. But all the guards here, why are they so terrifying and cruel? What has happened to these guards? We are precious, like secret jewels. There are forces and principles that shape the lineage from where the teachings come. And since we protect the teachings and teachers, we are part of the mishap lineage. We transform confusion into wisdom. 
Do you see the Tibetan upon his horse? Why he was born in Tibet, only to have his whole village and monastery overtaken before he was thrown out and forced to wander. He had led all those who were left alive through the Himalayas by navigating the celestial abodes, trying to save the teachings and his community. Some died upon that journey, but he survived, not without a few scars and memories, and that is why he limps every time he walks. The idea of the mishap lineage is that we encourage and sometimes even invite constant mishaps as the ground for the next stage of development upon the path. The theme of mishaps comes over and over. The concept of mishap lineage also reflects the personal quality for a personal journey. For the Tibetan saint, the one named Rinpoche, which means precious jewel, his appearance in the western world only occurred because of the mishap of the Chinese invasion of Tibet. He himself feasted on mishaps, using them as fuel and food for the continuing journey rather than shying away. We are remarkable beings who have gathered here. We are psychics, prescient, prophetic, and reveal revelations so that the teachings may continue on even at the cost of our own lives. Ask the Tibetan man, as he cares little for his own life or body. All he cares for is the lineage and the thread of the Dharma that lives on. This is the attitude of a Vajra guard. The same with Jesus, Saint Francis, and all others who laid down their lives as an example of living truth. We feel humbled by the exertion, devotion, and realization of those teachers who have come before us. More than that, meeting these guards should feel like meeting family. How extraordinary to feel so at home with people from this far, far away place, so different from our own home and yet so similar, said the Vajra guard. But I don't understand the reason for all the mishaps. Now the Vajra guard was rather soft, and so he pushed away the hair over my forehead. He revealed the scars that were imprinted upon my face, and so he said, In order to shed the ego, in order to understand the principle of egolessness, we have to practice a lot. We have to experience a lot in this lifetime. Without that, we can't develop at all. It is not just an accident or a series of chances. Rather, the whole thing is somewhat planned or programmed to the extent that there is an intelligent awareness or vision at work as to how this lineage can continue to exist. In our case, the name of the lineage barely matters. It is not so much proving one's credentials or using them as one's own decorations. Rather, the point is to uphold the lineage and transmission at all costs. That provides good background to support all beings, so it is a trustworthy situation. Because of the mishaps of this tradition, we develop a sense of fearlessness. We have to relate with our own bodies and minds, which can be a foreign situation. We are always faced with the unknown. It's like you pay your landlord rent, and you think you can afford to relax for a month, but suddenly, the landlord knocks and says, I want to kick you out because of such and such. Leave or I'll call the police. Or right when you think your love affair is going well, suddenly, something comes up. Big explosions always seem to be taking place, said the Vajra guard. 
But how do you make sense of these occurrences? It's tapas. The more you fire gold, the more pure it becomes. If you are actually in contact with reality, and if you are in control of reality, then you are in contact with complete constant mishaps. Because you are in contact and in control, the mishaps begin to come to you rather than you bumping into them. At a certain point upon the path, it becomes fantastic, delightful, and this can make everything very cheerful because it keeps coming. That is the story of Milrepa. Milrepa went off to study, but when he came back, he found his house ruined, his family destroyed, not even a funeral service for his mother. He had no friends left. It was like returning to a haunted home. All these mishaps shaped him, burned him, and that is why he stands in the room among all of us, said the Vajra guard. Across the room, I saw Milrepa dancing to the music and drumbeat. Why all of these great guardians had suffered mishaps on repeat. Some call us idiots, some call us fools, but the path of fearlessness begins with the discovery of fear, and so bravery is our greatest tool. Our subject matter is warriorship. Anyone who is interested in hearing the truth, we call it the Dharma. And anyone who is interested in finding out about himself or herself means you are a brave person. The humble warrior is supreme. Once you have made the leap of daring, you might become arrogant. You might even say, look at me, I have jumped, I am so great, so fantastic. But arrogant warriorship does not work. It does nothing to benefit others. You need to cultivate gentleness so that you remain humble, soft, and open. Allow tenderness to come into your heart. Renounce putting on a new suit of armor or growing a thick skin. The warrior who has accomplished true renunciation is completely naked and raw, without even skin or tissue. You are able to be, quite fearlessly, what you are, the same way Christ was crucified, said the guard. As I walked around the room, how could I have missed the central fire of the greatest light? I was so overwhelmed by the fierce nature of these guards that I had missed one simple man bowing in an orange robe that had not yet appeared in my sight. I stepped closer to this man who did not dance with the raven guards, yet he was the most humble and the most devoted by far. He knelt in front of us with his back turned to thee. He faced the source of the all-powerful light and it was so bright that the spiritual aura was ever free, a word came to mind, and there the spirit whispered, Maharaji, which means great king, and so we knelt near him and said, Hello, Swami. He was wrapped in an orange robe, and his head was shaved except for one little spot in the back. We thought of what we should say, but we didn't know where to begin or what to ask. We simply stayed upon our knees, just like him. As his eyes were closed, he knelt with his face down, prostrating out on his limbs. Very suddenly, we found that we had burst into tears, as if we were so emotional about something, and maybe we had been ashamed of the many past lives or the past years. But this was not regret, it was love pouring out. 
we could not explain such an intense release or what we were even crying about. Oh, we cried and we cried, and so much water poured out from our eyes, it turned into the rain and snow upon the great mountain named Kailash, which became the five rivers flowing down the various sides. Those rivers went out to the world, and we prayed the water would spread to the world to heal the people, creatures, and the trees. Rudraksha, said Radna Swami. What? Spirituality and religion are not for philosophical debate, but for transforming the hearts of all people, he added. Through those tears, we could see what was behind the light, but depending on whose eyes we looked through, the vision seemed to shift into many different sights. This space under the peak of the pyramid was mutable in nature, and to the Swami, this ultimate potential manifested as his greatest teacher. But to us, we were very hesitant, because it appeared as a sword with the sharpest features. It has been a long journey for us, but we've made it here together. Let us come together in prayer, said the Swami. And as we prayed together, we understood that the eighth Bhumi is connected with the Paramita of prayer, or in the context of the path of awakening, it could be thought of as aspiration or inspiration. Aspiration is connected with vision. Generally what happens to us is that we cannot think bigger. We think that if we think bigger, we are foolish, that we are speaking nonsense. We think that we cannot have a vision of something expanded, elaborate, open, and workable. Sometimes we are concerned we might do the wrong thing, or that we might make a mistake. Small thinking is based on a kind of unfamiliarity and uncertainty. You are just about to approach something beyond your conception of what you can handle, and you may begin to panic. When that panic happens, you become smaller and smaller, more and more practical, economical, and sensible. Because those are the only resources you have, but having great vision is seen as madness and terrifying. You think that somebody who has great vision must be mad. The vision of the eighth Bhumi cannot be moved or changed. It is always there. By remaining immovable, you can expand. If you actually do not move, you accomplish everything at once. But if you try to move, you miss a lot of things. While you are there, you miss this. And while you are here, you miss that. The highest speed of all is not to move, and so you stay completely still. Immovability is good advice. The eighth Bhumi has two types of vision, temporary and permanent. Temporary vision means that whenever you need to be resourceful in working with sentient beings, a vision of how to help will arise. Great guardians do not have to think in terms of strategy. The situation comes to them. Permanent vision means that you do not have to step back. You never give up on your long-term projects, whatever they may be. But you expand your work infinitely and constantly. You are not panicked by expansion. The eighth Bhumi is like a good friend who constantly encourages you to behave and expand. On the eighth Bhumi, the guardian begins to give up the concept of deep understanding 
the Dharma is no longer regarded as understanding, and it is not even a state of being, it is just there. And there it was, right in front of us, and as we looked through the Swami's eyes, we saw that this pinnacle of light was connected to his great guru, Srilu Prabhupada, who had taught him, and there the lineage of every great teacher stretched on through the various yogic limbs and into the entire world, all the way back to God. We could see the soul was one with the great source, and to the Swami it was named Krishna. But the deeper we looked, we saw Wind Horse. She galloped so fast, and there the jewel was upon her back. But when we looked to the peak of the pyramid, we had found it to materialize in the shape of a sword that was prepared to attack. Why can't we see it like you? Why does this vision of God's totality appear differently for me? Please help me understand this great mystery, Your Holiness, Radna Swami. He took a breath in, then a breath out. He need not speak, because if we focused upon his face, we could hear what his mind stream's teachings were about. There is a fig tree in an ancient story, the Ashwata, the everlasting rooted in heaven. Its branches earthward, each of its leaves is a song of the scriptures, and he or she who knows it, knows all the scriptures, downward and upward. Its bending branches are fed by the forces of creation. The buds it puts forth are the things of the sense. Roots it has also, reaching downward, into this world, the roots of man's actions. What its form is, its end and beginning, its every nature, can never be known here. Therefore, a man or woman should contemplate God until he or she has sharpened the sword of his non-attachment. With this sword, you must cut through the firmly rooted Ashwata tree. Then you must try to realize that state from which there is no return to future births. Take refuge in that primal being from whom all the seeming activity streams forth forever. When men or women have thrown off their ignorance, they are free from pride and illusion. They have conquered the evil of worldly attachment. They live in constant union with God. All craving has left them. They are no longer at the mercy of opposing sense reactions. Thus, they reach that state which is beyond all change. This is God's infinite being. Shall the sun lend it any light, or the moon, or fire? For it shines self-luminous always, and he or she who attains God will never be reborn into suffering unless to help others. Aspects of this light is the soul within every creature, keeping that nature eternal. Yet it seems to be separate, putting on the mind and senses the garment made of creation. When the Lord puts on a body, or casts it from him or her, he and she enters or departs, taking the mind and senses away from him or her, as the wind steals perfume out of the flowers, watching over the ear and the eye, and presiding there behind touch, and taste, and smell. He and she is also within the mind. He and she enjoys and suffers the things of the senses, dwelling in the flesh 
or departing, or one with the forces of creation, knowing their moods and motions. He and she is invisible always to the ignorant, but his and her sages see him and her with the eye of wisdom. Those devoted who have gained tranquility through the practice of spiritual discipline behold this light of God in their own consciousness, but those who lack tranquility and discernment will not find the light of God, even though they may try so hard to do so. That light lives in the sun, lighting all the worlds, the light of the moon, the light that is in fire. Know that light to be God. God's energy enters the earth, sustaining all lives. God becomes the moon, giver of water and sap, to feed the plants and the trees. Flame of life in all, God consumes the many foods, turning them into strength that upholds the body. God is in all hearts. God gives and takes away knowledge and memory. God is all the scriptures tell. God is the true teacher, the knower of the soul. There are two kinds of personalities in the world, the mortal and the immortal. The personality of all creatures is mortal. The personality of the individuality of God is said to be immortal. It is the same forever, but there is one other than these. The impersonal being who is called the Supreme Soul. God, or Krishna, is the unchanging Lord who pervades and supports the three worlds. And since God, the Spirit Soul, transcends the mortal and even the immortal, God is known in this world and in the scriptures as the Supreme Reality. He and she who is free from delusion and knows God as the Supreme Reality knows all that can be known. Therefore, you will adore God with your whole heart. This is the most sacred of all truths that I have ever taught. Realize this and you become truly wise. The purpose of your life will be fulfilled, said Radna Swami. Your Holiness, then all beings are connected to the Supreme Soul, and we are devoted to God, you, and every creature that is adored. But we do not understand why you see your Guru in this great light of God, and we see a mighty sword. It is better to do your own duty, however imperfectly, than to assume the duties of another person, however successfully. Prefer to die doing your own duty. By doing the duty of another will bring you into great spiritual danger, he said. But what is this sword's purpose? In every age it comes back to deliver the holy, to destroy the evil and wickedness, and to establish righteousness, he said. But how could any of us be worthy? Most men and women worship God because they want success in their worldly undertakings. This kind of material success can be gained very quickly upon earth. But when you reach this light, ignorance will no longer delude you. In the light of this knowledge, you will see the entire creation within your own soul and in God. And even if you were the foulest of sinners, this knowledge of God alone would carry you like a raft over all your sins. The light of God is a blazing fire that turns wood to ashes. The fire of knowledge turns all karma to ashes. On earth, 
There is no purifier as great as this knowledge. When a man or woman is made perfect in this union, he and she knows its truth within his and her heart. The man and woman of faith, whose heart is devoted, whose senses are mastered, they find God. Enlightened, they pass at once to the highest place, where they reach peace beyond passion. The ignorant, the faithless, the doubter goes to their destruction. How shall they enjoy this world, or the next, or any happiness? When someone can act without desire, through practice and devotion, when their doubts are torn to shreds, because they know God, when their heart is poised in the presence of their soul, no bonds can bind them. Still I can see it, a doubt that lingers deep in your heart brought forth by delusion. You doubt the truth of the living soul. Where is your sword of discrimination? Draw it and slash delusion to pieces. Arise, O son of the spirit, take your stand in union with God, said the Swami. By some yama, we focused the sight of our soul upon the great sword. Our awareness became one-pointed when the greatness of God came forward. Then, the light of the great spirit revealed its transcendent divine form, speaking from innumerable mouths, seeing with a myriad of eyes, of many marvelous aspects, adorned with countless divine ornaments, brandishing all kinds of heavenly weapons, wearing celestial garlands and the attire of paradise, anointed with perfumes of heavenly fragrance, full of revelations, resplendent, boundless, of ubiquitous regard. Suppose a thousand suns should rise together in the sky, such is the glory and shape of the infinite God. God is the entire universe in all its multitudinous diversity, logged as one being within the body of all, the King of kings, the Queen of queens, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, the begotten Son of God, born of the Father and Mother before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father and Mother, through this great spirit all things were made, for us men and women, and for our salvation. The spirit came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnated of the Virgin Mother and became man. I believe in the great spirit, the heavenly Father and Holy Mother, the givers of life, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one, holy and universal community, for the forgiveness of all sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. <laughs> Heavenly God, I see God within all bodies, each in degree, the multitude of creation. God is throned upon a lotus, seen in all the sages and even the holy serpents, a universal form. I see you without limit, infinite of arms, eyes, mouths, and bellies. See and find no end, middle or beginning. Crowned with diadems, you wield the mace and discus, shining every way. The eyes shrink from your splendor. 
brilliant like the sun, like fire, blazing and boundless. You are all we know, supreme, beyond man's measure. This world's sure set plinth and refuge never shaken, guardian of eternal law, life's soul undying, birthless, deathless, yours is the greatest strength, million-armed, and the sun and moon your eyeballs, fiery-faced, you blast the world's filth to ashes, fill the sky's four corners, span the chasm, sundering heaven from earth, superb and terrible is your form that makes the three worlds tremble, into you, the companions of angels enter with clasped hands in dread and wonder. Crying peace, the saints and miracles sing your praise with hymns of adoration. But at the sight of this, the sharpness of the sword was on fire, and all of us were fear-struck, even as I am. When we see God as this weapon, all our peace may be gone, and our heart may be troubled. Blaring like the fires of doomsday morning, north, south, east, and west are all confounded. Lord of angels, have mercy! And so the flaming sword spoke. I am time, the master of the people, ready for that hour that ripens to their ruin. All these people will someday die. Strike! May I remain in your hand, no matter what. There, strike! Win back the kingdom, all wealth and glory. My son, arise! Slay! By me, these men are slain already. Take up my sword and fight. Have no fear, the foe is yours to conquer. As we heard these words, we folded our hands together in prayer and bowed down trembling. Prostrating ourselves with great faith, we addressed the Holy Spirit in a choking voice. Evil scatters every way in terror. You are the first and highest in heaven, O ancient spirit. It is within you the cosmos rests safely. You are the knower and the known, goal of all striving. Endless is your change. You brought forth creation. Lord of fire and death, of wind and moon and waters, father of the born, mother of all children, hail, all hail to you, a thousand salutations. Forgive us, Lord, author of this world, the unmoved and the moving. You alone are fit for worship. You are the highest. We bow down and ask for pardon. Forgive us, Father, as a friend forgives his comrade. Mother, forgive us as your sons and daughters, as a man and woman forgives their dearest lover. We have seen what no man or woman ever saw before us. Deep is our delight, but still our dread is greater. Show us a gentler form. O Lord, be gracious. Show us the shape the Swami sees. Come to us as a lover, as a brother, or a child. Show us your gentle form. This sword is so powerful, and the flames are beyond wild, we prayed. This time around, the fire of God did not change, and the sword remained, and so did these flames. Even as a wise man acts according to the tendencies of his or her own nature, all living creatures follow their tendencies, paused the Swami. On the eighth Bhumi, the guardian is the embodiment of peace and non-aggression and begins to develop what are called the ten powers. 
power over life, mind, belongings, karma, birth, desire, aspiration, miracles, wisdom, and dharma. You are not imprisoned by anything, even your dedication to the transcendent virtues. You are enormously inspired by the total needlessness of any conceptual classification, either spiritually or worldly. Enormous freedom is developed, and because of that, you achieve these ten powers. Power over life, the first power, means that you are not threatened by life. You are no longer concerned with survival, physical or psychological threats, health concerns, or any form of discomfort. Power over mind, the second power, means that you approach your mental activity as inspiration, rather than as something uncontrollable that takes you over. Power over belongings, the third power, means that you do not become a slave to your belongings, for the very reason that you do not renounce anything, because once you begin to give something up, you become possessed by it at the same time. With the power over karma, the fourth power, because mental volitional action is being transmuted into aspiration, you do not have hopes and fears of future karmic consequences. With power over birth, the fifth power, your birth is not subject to national neurosis or national psychology, and it is not biased by genetics. You have free choice of rebirth. You have control over where you will be born and who your parents will be. Only the guardian of the eighth Bhumi has this major mark of spiritual achievement. The sixth power is the power over desire or longing. This power has more of a pragmatic aspect, whereas power over aspiration has more visionary quality. The seventh power, power of aspiration, where there is enormous openness, vision, and future orientation. You are bringing the future into the present. It is as if the future is already happening now. It is like a great leader of a country, having a vision of how the country should develop, or a good architect having a vision of a fantastic building complex. That kind of aspiration and future orientation is a form of capturing the future in the present by magical power. You are bringing the future into the present and executing your wishes accordingly. So your approach becomes up to date rather than future oriented dreaming and your execution becomes accurate. The eighth power is the power over miracles. The general idea of a miracle is that it is like turning water into fire or sky into earth. But in this case, miracles are based on taking advantage of situations rather than fighting against it. We may think that if we had power over miracles, we could conjure up a million dollars if we were poor, but that goes directly against our karmic inheritance. It is said that even the Buddha cannot change the law of karma. So miracles do not go against the karmic flow. A miracle is karmically lawful. Situations provide the source of miracles, like flint and stone create the spark to produce fire. There is a story about a Buddhist named Milrepa, and Milrepa appeared to his disciple inside a yakhorn, without changing or appearing to change size. That was a true miracle. It is said that Milrepa never became smaller, and the yakhorn never became bigger. 
but Milrepa was still singing a song and sitting in the yakhorn. So how could Milrepa fit in a yakhorn if he didn't change? That's a direct contradiction. But a person who is awake, up to date, and present can take advantage of situations and create seeming miracles. That kind of miracle brings you into the present. The purpose of miracles is to stop your mind. Because your logic no longer functions, you have to stop and look twice. A miracle is not regarded as a gimmick, a game, or trickery. The ninth power is power over wisdom. With this power, the source of wisdom is endless. The guardian achieves inexhaustible wisdom, or yana. The tenth power is the power over dharma. With this power, the guardian becomes the holder of the dharma. Your approach and your way of relating with the teachings, yourself and students, is such that you become a dharma raja, or a king of dharma, said the sage. The flaming sword was before us, but we were too stunned to speak or move, and so we sat upon our knees to gaze up as we did not know what to do. But this sword cannot be for me. Do not be afraid. It is said that before entering the sea, a river trembles with fear. She looks back at the path she has traveled, from the peaks of the mountains, the long winding road, crossing forest and village, and in front of her, she sees an ocean so vast that to enter there seems nothing more than to disappear forever. But there is no other way. The river cannot go back. Nobody can go back. To go back is impossible in existence. The river needs to take the risk of entering the ocean because only then will fear disappear. Because that's where the river will know it's not about disappearing into the ocean, but of becoming the entire ocean," said the Swami. But how is all of this possible? Cities are born of practices, performed in previous births, or by herbs, mantra repetition, aestheticism, or by samadhi," said the Swami. Forgiveness, I begged. When we forgive someone, we liberate ourselves from the poison of negativity that is within our own hearts," said the Swami. But why are we here? You are here to enable the divine purpose of the universe to unfold. That is how important you are, he said. But this sword, what is it truly saying? It asks that we know ourselves, said the Swami. But I don't even know who we are. We are the source of life and the mystery and magic of life itself manifesting. All the abilities we have, this is really what we are treasuring and offering our respect and reverence to," said the sage. Then what happens if we take up the sword? The children of life will make it to the golden age, but first you will enter into the holy war," said the Swami. And so we took hold of the flaming sword when it touched our hand and a link was made. Heaven and earth would be reunited, and so the children of life would be saved. Welcome to the Dharmapala's world, said the voice of Wind Horse. <laughs>